The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. And there you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you both. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Don. I can't believe it's almost it's the end of November. It's going to be December this week. You, wow. And you know, even more so, even more importantly, uh, I hope you have all been enjoying National Financial Planning Week. Uh, is it a holiday in your house? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, funny you brought that up. We actually missed that last week, November 15th to 21st. I guess we were out celebrating too much about it. You guys... Like party Groff. No, that. see, you were you were celebrating. I was going to say you were all so busy working, you didn't have time to, to of course, you know, celebrate Financial Planning Week. Exactly. Well, that is our way of celebrating. <laughs> oh, that's, I'm sorry. You guys must be a heck of a lot of fun on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Talking interest rates. That's right. So, oh, so, so what do you do? Have a giant countdown and then bring out your tax receipts? or? Oh. It, it, it's, it's insane. That's a good. We'll add that to the repertoire. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> All right. But uh, you know what? Um, it's it's a once a year where people are supposed to think about their financial plan. And really, the objectives of National Financial Planning Week is to raise awareness of the importance of financial planning. And it's actually interesting. It kind of hit home last week. I don't know if you ever, if you happen to see the 60-minute piece about ageism and uh, some like old, very very super seniors that were in their 90s and then here we are and they're now looking at them at age 99 to 100 and it was actually interesting an expert came on and said that uh people will likely live to 103 to 105 people born this year and if that isn't reason enough to think about financial planning nothing is okay because that list leaves so much time, and that was actually kind of interesting. Obviously, my wife is also in this business. That was the first thing that came to her mind. She says, wow, that, you know how much time that will mean people either keep working to afford to retire, or they'll be retired that much longer. So making sure people understand that you don't never want to run out of money, and that's the biggest fear most people have, and having a good, solid financial planning, being aware of it is extremely important. So making sure people understand the value of financial planning. Um, number three is uh, really the, uh, one of the objections is have a platform for the evolution of financial planning. Things have certainly changed a lot in the 35 years Andy and I have been in the business, and I'm sure they're going to change that much more in the next 35 years. So it gives basically that platform for things to come up and evolve. and also promotes the CFP, Certified Financial Planning Designation. I know Andy and I have talked about this many times over the years, but we can't say enough how important it is. There's a, still nothing in, in legislation saying you, you can't call yourself a financial planner. And really, you should be looking for who has their CFP. Uh, extremely important. It also means that you, you basically must go through a certain amount of hours of practice credits each year, about 40 hours a year, I believe it is, Andy, mm-hmm. in that neighborhood. And, uh, yep. 
because I know we both well go over that. So, and, and making sure that we stay on top of all the new changes that could affect people's lives. So, really, when you look at a financial plan, a personal financial plan, think of a, a box in the middle with financial planning, and from there, there's a lot of offshoots. So, one of the offshoots would be cash flow. Another would be your taxes. Another one would be insurance. Uh, retirement would be another one. And with retirement, there would be, okay, what about pensions? What about your withdrawal rate? Um, another one would be education, um, estate, major purchases. Those are all things, and again, any listener that has been listening to our show over the years would definitely say we've touched on all these subjects over the last 14 years. Funny enough, I didn't even talk about investments in that. That, of course, is part of the overall mix, but that's, that's uh, really not the focus in a financial plan. You create the financial plan, and then you find the investments that match with that plan. So really, it comes down to the four characteristics of a good financial plan. And number one, it has a good foundation. Now, what I mean by that is that you, don't, you prioritize what's important. So the very first foundation piece would be having an emergency fund. So therefore, if the car breaks down, you have money aside. You don't have to dip into your you know, re- retirement savings to uh, look after that. The next one, talking of which, is uh, debt management. Not going into a lot of debt. This is where people kind of go backwards. And it's very interesting right now with interest rates so low, and you're looking at five-year mortgages of under 2%. It's often easy to forget how much debt you're accumulating. And with debt, there's, you may think, okay, well, it's only 2%, but there's also the opportunity cost of not investing. So if you're putting $1,000 towards debt every month, that means you're not putting $1,000 towards investing. And so really the cost of that debt is both the interest rate you're being charged plus the return you're not getting by investing, which is kind of why the Rich get richer and the poor get poorer, so to speak. Uh, protection. Protection would be really the insurance end. What if uh, you, know, you were disabled or critically ill or there was a death? What happens to your financial plan then? You know what? I, we've seen people that may have had a, a good grip of saving for retirement, but if there's a disability, they then have to dip into those savings quite quickly because they didn't have proper protection, and there goes the whole plan out the window because they didn't have a good foundation. Um, after that comes retirement planning, putting a little bit of money um, each year or each month towards that end goal. Saving and investing finally is also good. Where, where are you going to save? And finally, the top piece is estate planning. So if you've got all the other things in order, then it's time to say, okay, how much should I leave to the kids or my charities? And you create that. So number one characteristic of a good financial plan is have a good foundation. Number two, it is goal-focused. And they created an acronym. I found it pretty clever. Uh, Actually, I kind of found it pretty smart. It actually is smart because they use the word smart to outline the whole idea of having it goal-focused. So a good goal should be S for specific. Um, For example, retiring at 65 or going to pay off a mortgage. Or I want to have my kids' education fund all topped up by the time they're 18. Have it measurable. M for measurable. I want to have X amount of dollars per year. Let's call it 40000 a year. 
after tax at retirement. Have it action-related. So you have a game plan, and you also have alternative plans. Number R, make it sure it's realistic. It's great to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to invest hundred grand a year, but you're, no, you're only making 120000 a year. It's almost impossible, to, so that's, that's not realistic. So therefore, having a realistic plan. And T, have it time-related. I'm going to put X amount of dollars per month for the next 10 years, and that will accumulate so many dollars to help for my retirement fund or for my kids' education or to help pay off the mortgage. So make it very goal-focused, and that allows people to really get kind of um, a grip on their financial plan because now they've created some goals with that. Make sure it's flexible, though. Number three, uh, make sure it can change in real time. And I know Andy and I have talked about our, our software that is state-of-the-art, and so that when we're in front of a client, we can actually make changes on the fly and see how does that affect their financial plan. So if they got a raise and they said, okay, well, now we can invest X amount of dollars more per year, or if there was some emergency or they want to help out a child and say, well, how does that affect my financial plan or a new car? We can throw that into the plan and see how it affects the overall plan. Number four is to make sure it's relevant. And this is where, you, you know, having a plan is nice, but making sure that you update the plan. And this is interesting because, you know, there's no sense in having a plan and then throw it, well, that's a beautiful plan, and throwing it into your drawer and never looking at it again. This is really a work in progress, and it constantly should be changed and updated as your cash flow updates as your life changes. Um, and for that matter, even your cash flow changes. You may have thought, well, I'm really good. I could live on 2000 a month. Well, that was great until you had kids. Or if you, you, know, you bought a more expensive house or your lifestyle increased. So really, as one person said, a goal without a plan is simply a wish. And it makes a lot of sense. So at the end of the day, why do you need financial planning? Well, biggest reason, and it was kind of interesting, they interviewed Warren Buffett, and they, he, was, he said in, his, uh, in one of his autobiographies that he bought his first stock when he was 11 year old, years old. And do you know what his biggest regret was, Scott? Selling it? <laughs> no, uh, but that's kind of interesting. No, his uh, biggest regret, he didn't start early enough. Wow. <laughs> he wanted to should have started earlier. So too little, you know, we all have too little time and too much to do. Financial planning involves thinking about the future and setting medium to long-term goals. And a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel uh, Kahneman, shown that most people struggle with, struggle with decision-making when it requires deliberate, consistent effort over a medium to long-term. Funny enough, we're actually really good at making decisions for short-term things, but we're not very good at longer-term planning. It's just not fun. So therefore, having a financial plan or having a planner to make sure you have a financial plan is extremely important. An example would be, you know what, I'm going to go book a holiday for next year because COVID is, is going to finish? Or would it be, I want to put X amount of dollars for the next 10 years, and where should I put it? Well, one requires a lot more consistent thought than the other. And to be honest, booking holidays is a lot more fun than trying to figure out how much you should add and where you should you add it to for your long-term goal. The government knows this, 
And that's why the government has come up with old age security and Canada Pension Plan. So in a nutshell, financial planning isn't necessarily difficult. In fact, it's rather simple. They polled people and they said, what do you expect in a financial plan? And it was really quite simple. Set goals, set up a savings plan, maximize your group RSP, you know, kind of those things. But it turned out that it was maybe simple, but it's very difficult because most people really wouldn't do it. And so although it's easy to say, having a financial plan and following it and having a planner beside you so that you don't make decisions based on emotion is key to a successful plan and at the end of the day, accomplishing those goals that you strive for. So do you know what they have named that generation that you are talking about that will live to be over 100 that are born today? No. Coronials. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They'll get back to you. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com. Andy and Don, all one word, dot com. And there you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button or listen to old archive shows. Uh, we're going to talk about sustainable investing. What does that mean? Sustainable, this is actually a term which it was around years ago. Uh, and it, it was it, the, the sort of short form was SRI. And SRI used to stand for socially responsible investing. And so, um, in, here at uh, IG, we were probably, I, I mean, we weren't the, the first one, but we were definitely part of the pioneers of institutions that were starting to offer clients an option to buy an investment or a mutual fund that fell under the SRI, Socially Responsible Investing. And we had a fund called our SUMA Fund, mm-hmm. and the SUMA Fund, uh, SUMA was sort of short for um uh, meaning summit and the top, right? And it was the idea was that we were focusing in on companies that were socially responsible in the context of um, they wouldn't be involved in anything in terms of polluting the environment. Um, they wouldn't be involved in anything to do with um, pornography. They wouldn't be involved in anything to do with tobacco or alcohol. Uh, you know, they wouldn't be involved in anything to do with um munitions or building of weapon systems or that type of thing. And so socially responsible investing sort of in the 80s, it, it, it started to take off. And I, I owned the investment for for years. And um, But the, the big argument, and I'm going to get into a little bit of this, was can you pick companies, can you socially responsibly invest in companies and still make a good return, right? So I was thinking, what... If I don't own those tobacco companies or the alcohol companies or, you know, the gambling companies, can doesn't that help my overall return by having those in it? And uh, so we want to talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. So at the end of the day, 
Andy, you're absolutely right. I know, you know, talking to clients back in the 80s, that was all, you know, all good, but, you know, what kind of performance am I going to get? Exactly, right? And so uh, sometimes, we, you know, we were working from our conscience and, uh, and our heart, and clients would say, well, I don't really care about return. And then I just, I want to feel I can sleep at night. We've got investments that are aligned with my own personal beliefs. And um, so, you know, and I would say that in general, the approach struggled in terms of trying to maintain its performance relative to similar funds that, say, you're investing in a, a global economy. So I think the shift is has been profound, and it's been going on for the last decade into what we call the new SRI, which is sustainable instead of social, so sustainable, responsible investing. And the sustainable, responsible investing, or SRI, it, it, it sort of is the overall guiding principles. And when they drill down to understand, am I going, is this an investment product that is, and there are SRI um, ratings and companies out there that will rate a different investment or different companies as to their own uh, sustainable, responsible uh, investments. And and the governing factor of this is what we call the ESG, which is the Environmental, Social, and Governance. And ESG, so those are sort of the, the three building blocks to understand is a company on track and doing the things that we want to do. So some examples of um, of that environmental, social, and governance situation or uh, criteria would be, for example, climate change. Is there, from an environment perspective, is a company impacting uh, climate change or uh, are they doing things to reduce their impact on climate change? Um, we could have, so from a social perspective, it could be something like child labor. Does a, does a company employ uh, child labor and what are their um, health, what is their health and safety record for employees as well? And, and it's interesting, um, um, not only is it, uh, we think they may think that they're actually investing in areas that have no child labor or anything such as that, but uh, if you remember um, Loblaws, for example, with Joe Fresh, mm-hmm. they, they had no idea that the there was some child labor areas going on, and they were able to change those because of this, um, because of all the investors' pressure on this. Exactly. And so, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that, too, in terms of what we call the proxy fight or the proxy uh, ability to, to change directions for companies. Things like, um, obviously, still weapon systems, like anybody that produces landmines or cluster munitions, as they're often called, um, and then we also look at, from a governance perspective, things like, is there representative leadership? What kind of diversity does a company have in terms of its uh, leadership structure and, and who's, in, who's involved in that? And, and then coming back to um, environment as well, it could be uh, water scarcity issues. You know, is a company abuse, abusing or using too much water? Uh, and then what about their waste management? How are they dealing with and, and addressing their own um, you know, recyclability of their products and their impact on the environment as well? So I think this has been a good shift from what we used to call a socially responsible investing to sustainable responsible investing. And, um, you know, when we as at IG, we basically adopted the SRI approach. So instead of going... Um, 
uh, into a tight mandate of socially responsible investment, we now have an over, and that might be applying to just one or two investments. Now, for all of our investments, we use an SRI approach, the Sustainable Responsible Investing Approach. And there are, there's the five guiding principles that we talked about. Um, one is um, what we call the active PRI signatory. So what this means is that PRI stands for Principles for Responsible Investment. And what that means is that as a company or as an organization, you would sign on to that. And, and that means that you're going to be more open and disclose what you are doing on all of these fronts, these uh, in the environment, social, and on your governance. And today, you know, there are, there's over $100 trillion and over 2,500 companies, financial services companies like us, that have signed on to this program uh, of being a signatory under the um, PRI. Um, the ESG integration, this environmental, social governance, is one of the key factors we look at in terms of decision-making when we think about buying a company um, or investing in a company. Active ownership is another one, so we expect the asset managers that we're using to be active owners in the proxy voting, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And then collaboration efforts, which would basically mean that um, promoting uh, companies or organizations that are promoting and advancing the sustainable, responsible investing landscape. So they're just sort of making it out, taking it out there and saying, this is now the new measurement. And, you know, we're trying to, I guess, encourage companies to disclose more about their ESG, their environmental, social, and governance issues, and because those can have a big impact on their future growth. And so I'll give you an example of um, uh, one of the companies. And, and so what IG has done, as I said, is we've done this as an overall arching uh, mandate. But so one of our, when we pick a, an investment manager for our clients, uh, we want to make sure that they're following these guidelines as well. So I'll give you like a world-class asset manager, uh, one here in Canada called Jaroslawski Fraser. And Jaroslawski Fraser, uh, one of the top pension managers, one of the top, top independent uh, investment managers, uh, has an excellent long-term track record, and we are uh, partnered with them in terms of helping advise our clients on some of the products that we offer. And so they were sharing a story about Magna. Now, we all know Magna, right? It's a Canadian company, but um, with you know, world-class uh, manufacturing uh, in the U.S. as well as Canada and around the world. And um, so one of the things that, uh, that they were able to influence Magna and talk to Magna about was the amount of waste that was going to landfills. And so as a result of the interactions with Jaris Jaroslawski Fraser over the course of several years and in, in, in their impact of their investing in Magna, they were able to um, dramatically reduce the amount of waste that ended up going to landfill. And it actually improved their profitability. Mm. So that was a key component. The second thing that they were able to um, gather from Magna was, that, was their uh, push towards EV, electric vehicle, and the electric vehicle framework. And so that whole process is actually, you know, driving down carbon uh, emissions, et cetera. So they really like what the future trend of that is going to be as far as a company. And so uh, as a result, had uh, increased their investment in Magna over the, over the last few years. Um, 
they gave me another example uh, uh, from Jaroslavski Fraser. There's a company called Premium Brands. And Premium Brands is another Canadian company, but it, um, it, it basically is a food provider where companies that um, can buy into or become part of Premium Brands and in a partnership. And the neat thing about this is that uh, the employees and the, all have an ownership structure in the company. But one of the biggest things that was in the news recently was that premium be- uh, premium brands entered into a 50-50 ownership, a joint ownership, uh, with Clearwater Lobster. And Clearwater Lobster is an indigenous company on the East Coast. And, um, and it was really a fantastic um, opportunity to uh, then influence the sustainability of the lobster catch with, uh, with the indigenous community and at the same time improve um, uh, profitability and supply chains for, uh, for that organization, Clearwater Lobster. So to the, to the extent that um, now Premium Brands has actually been uh, approached by West Coast Indigenous um, groups to talk about their fishery and how to access or partner with Clearwater. And, and then again, we, we create a cycle where we can create a more econ- or a more environmentally friendly approach to how we're harvesting uh, from the oceans. Yeah. So, so basically, Gerald C. Fraser, as a money manager, would go to one of these companies and say, we like your company, but we don't like this part of your company. And we yes. will invest in your company, but only if you change certain things. Exactly. And so I want to talk a little bit about what we call proxy voting. And so just as Don was mentioning, when, when we as an organization and one of our, our, our advi- sub-advisors, like Jaroslavski Fraser, makes investments into a company, they now own shares of that company. And so they, buy, they get what's called a proxy vote, where they can uh, vote those shares at board meetings. And to give you an idea, like in the last, just in 2019, last year, I was looking at some statistics here, and I just want to get it in front of me. There were 743 engagements by our sub-advisors with various companies just in one year hmm. um, over, over how they're operating from an SRI perspective, the sustainable investment um, approach. So uh, talked about Jaroslavski Fraser, McKenzie Financial, interactions with a Brazilian mining company on social issues and labor practices. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, who was involved in, uh, dis- in discussions and change at a European auto manufacturer over governance in terms of creating more diversity within the board of directors and also um, better compensation. Uh, BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world, uh, influence over a healthcare company in terms of their social issues and drug pricing, how to, how to level the playing field for drug pricing. Uh, PIMCO, which is a, um, uh, a large a U.S. manager as well, working with an Asian financial company on social issues and employee standards. And uh, so this type of action is happening behind the scenes, and clients wouldn't, wouldn't generally know about that. But the peace of mind of knowing that you're working with a team that's focused on SRI as far as, um, you know, changing how companies are doing with an idea of profitability. So I want to talk about returns. I know we're going to, I don't want before we run out of time. So what's the deal? Are you, is this going to actually improve the return on my investment or is it going to take away from the return on my investment? And um, there have been over 2,200, 2,200 empirical studies done on this. 
And in 90% of those studies, there was no, there was not a negative impact. In other words, you were basically neutral. Uh, they drilled down 62% of the time, there was positive returns. It actually increased the return 62% of the time. Uh, only 7 to 8% of the time did it produce a negative or lower return. So overall, 90% of the time that you're investing with this um, SRI component, you're basically either having no impact on your returns or improving your returns. And, um, and in fact, they went back, part of these studies was to understand those that have a high ESG, so high environmental, social, and governance approach to how they're operating their business, actually had a 6% compound annual return improvement over other companies in a similar type of business. At the low end, about 2%. So if they weren't as focused on it, but they had some in place, they could be as high as 2% better per year in terms of return. Uh, on the bad ESG side, so people that weren't paying attention to the environment, social, and governance, it was um, as much as minus 2.5% return, uh, and at the better end of it, about 0.6% improvement. So, um, you know, it, it really does make a difference in terms of how these things, uh, how your investment returns are impacted over time. And so do not rule out uh, the ESG or environment, uh, social and governance, as well as the um, the SRI, the sustainable uh, the sustainable investment approach, is definitely a way to go. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Talking about the top 10 tips to building your financial future. Yes, and, and before I get to that... I just wanted to comment on Andy's piece there on the sustainable investing, and particularly when you have, you know, politicians around the world that are ro- we're rolling back climate change, rolling back, um, for example, California and, and their emissions, and rolling back different things, thinking they're helping out companies and helping out their profitability, and it turns out, uh, you know, through this many studies, that wasn't the case at all. You actually were hurting the company's profitability and hurting the investors. So it actually uh, goes totally against that, and uh, that was an interesting piece there, Andy. And it, Thank you know, you very much. it's interesting as well that they say the same thing about political parties. Everybody wants to see every political party have some sort of position on this moving forward, and I guess it's the same with investing. Absolutely, you and you know what? At the end of the day, it's uh, having different mindsets. Uh, everybody shouldn't have the exact same opinion, and. Uh, finding out what the experts say and believing scientists and believing experts. And at the end of the day, funny enough, it's the investors that are driving policy because when it comes to making money, that will drive the policy of a company more so than any legislation will. So uh, 
quite interesting. And the fund managers doing this on a day-by-day basis are making these decisions and actually helping out not only performance, but the, the, uh, the climate in the world. So quite interesting. But going back to my top 10 tips for building your future, and again, writing on National Planning Week from last, from last week, the top 10, starting very, very simple here. And this is not a newsflash, but spend less than you earn. And if it's interesting, it sounds so obvious, it's a mantra for a key to success, but it's amazing how many people still believe that there's a money tree out there or maybe the government will bail me out, I can always go bankrupt, whatever the case is, it's all wrong. And The Millionaire Next Door, which was a book written by PhDs in the U.S., said just save 10% and the, and the multi-millionaires were saving 15% of what they made and they adjusted their lifestyle accordingly. Number two, pay yourself first. Draw up a budget and stick to it. Sounds easy. Sounds simple. But again, coming down with a, a financial planner, because I know we've given these kind of a, a cash flow analysis to people and say fill them out and come back. Normally speaking, they are either half filled in or incorrectly filled in because there's so many holes people forget about. So again, having that person going through all the questions is important. Number three, protect who you care about starting with you. You know, if you think about it, and let's say you're making 100000 a year, and you've got a 35-year career ahead of you, that's a huge asset. That is a massive asset. There's $3.5 million you're going to be making over those 35 years. You should protect this asset. And if you had a person or something that made that kind of money for you, you'd want that insured. And that's really what it's saying. Protect that asset, and you are the one you should be protecting with proper coverage, whether it's on life insurance or disability or on critical illness. On top of that, just generally looking after your health, getting proper exercise, listening to your doctor, that won't, that's probably a good idea, eating well, because you are the big asset running your, your company, which is your household. So number four, build your cushion or disaster fund. Now, this is interesting. Um, I'm not a big fan of leaving a whole ton of money sitting in a bank account because there's an opportunity cost for doing that, meaning you don't have that money invested. But let's say you were unemployed. You know, those RSPs are, are something that you may be able to touch at that time where you're in a lower tax bracket because you're saying, okay, my income's lower now. Maybe I'll take them out at a lower tax bracket. And I can always put them back in when I get a, a higher-paying job or possibly a line of credit. But at the end of the day, by saving the money, having it in an RSP, or having a line of credit on hand, especially at today's interest rates, it isn't a bad way to have a cushion. Number five, and this one here is is one of my biggest pet peeves, and I think everybody should do it, is join your employer's workplace pension plan. It is a guaranteed way to make money, especially if they're matching, and it's painless. They're taking it off your pay. Now, if you look at a lot of the civil servants or teachers out there, they have it come off automatically, and the reason is is because they have no say and they end up having a great retirement. So, again, why not do it for yourself? Number six, saving strategy. Have a saving strategy that looks at the short-term savings, the medium-term savings, and the long-term pot and have different strategies for each one. And this is where having a financial planner will go through each strategy and saying how much, what kind of investments should I have in the short-term pot. For example, right now there's high-interest savings accounts earning 0.65%. Medium term, I'm going to pay off a, a chunk of my mortgage when it comes up each year, or I'm going to buy a car in four years, whatever the case is. 
have a strategy for that. And of course, long-term retirement planning. And how should you invest in that? And we go through each one of those. Seven is start now. Don't find a reason to procrastinate. Just do it. The Nike commercial, just do it. And that's the biggest thing. There's so many people wait. And as Warren Buffett said, I just wish he started earlier. This is one of the biggest reasons people don't have money. Number eight, use tax breaks that are available to you. RSPs, TFSAs, RESPs, they're there to help you out. And it's amazing how much money people are leaving on the table because they're not using them effectively. Number nine, write a will. And I know, Andy, you talked about this, I think it was last week. And even if you don't have much, dying in test state isn't the way to go. It's a cost. It's, it's stressful. And just write a will. Get it done and put it away. At the same time, you might as well get the power of attorney done. And finally, seek some advice. Get professional advice from my financial planner to try to do this. It's uh, difficult, and plus it's an emotional. And having that third party will make sure that those other nine tips to build your financial future are in place. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. A Banton Trust. What is this? Banton Trust, and I, you know, as part of our ongoing efforts to uh, help people and engage on terms of estate planning, one of the strategies that, uh, and it's not new, but uh, I just came revisited again recently, which I thought is worth sharing to listeners, is something that's been nicknamed the Banton Trust. We've heard of the Henson Trust. The Henson Trust is something used to protect people with disabilities. But the Banton Trust goes a little bit further in terms of protecting uh, seniors and vulnerable seniors, and we'll talk a little bit about maybe who it works for. So this actually, you got to be careful when you create your estate plan because you could end up in the courts and end up being the uh, topic of discussion on future radio shows <laughs> as far as how your life unfolded. So um, this is the story of George and Lily Banton, who in 1992, now they had five children, uh, and in 1992, they entered into an agreement to create a trust. And basically what they did is they uh, gave their two sons, their two, uh, two sons, the oldest, George Jr. and Victor, um, uh, power of attorney for each of them. But in addition to that, in 1990, and this is prior to 1992, but in 1992, they um, changed the ownership of their home where they put it into trust, uh, sorry, they transferred the ownership of the home for to the two sons, the two older sons, in trust for uh, them while they're alive, and then for the five children after they pass away. Okay, so it's sort of like an alter ego trust in the concept that we've talked about before. But, um, so... They created this trust. The home is now uh, owned by the two sons, uh, but 
the parents are the beneficiaries of the trust that owns the home, and uh, the two sons are the trustees. And so basically, um, as I mentioned, so the beneficiaries are George and Lily while they were alive. And even though when they did this in 1992, uh, it turns out that Lily was actually beginning to fail. She was showing signs of dementia. But because the two sons had power of attorney, they were able to act on her behalf and engage in signing and creating this trust. And as I mentioned, so at death, the money would be split between the five children on the last uh, on the last uh, death of the two of them, George and Lily. So at age 88, and this is flash forward about uh, six or seven years, and George had had some uh, testicular cancer. He was beginning to, uh, so having some health issues, beginning to show some signs of dementia as well. He moved into a retirement home and um, sold the home. Now, when the house was sold, the two sons took the proceeds, which ended up being about $200,000, and decided to give it back to their dad. And they figured that his dad would need the money to be able to um, carry on living in the retirement home. Now, within four months of arriving at the retirement home, uh, George met uh, a waitress named Muna Yassin. And Muna Yassin was quite a bit younger than George. In fact, 55 years younger. She was only 33 years old. And we'll flash forward through the, the, the romance and everything else. And within four months later, they secretly got married. And um, what happens when somebody gets married to their will, Scott? Do you know what happens? No, it's I can't imagine the no honeymoon. longer valid. Oh. So the will, which left everything to the kids, is now gone. It's no longer valid. And oddly enough, she was able to convince George within one week of getting married to create a new will and a new power of attorney, which left everything to her and also put her in charge as power of attorney. So the first moment that the kids, the two sons, realized that something was wrong was when he went to do a $10,000 redemption at the bank, and uh, and the new wife was involved in terms of extracting these funds. So, um, so something was going wrong. Within four months after that, now we're into April, George dies, and the uh, court decided to actually the, the, the estate ended up in court in a nine-day trial which is phenomenal because less than two percent of estates go to end up going to court in front of a judge so that's not very many um and in the but in the trial the um uh, the the george had they mentioned that george had said that the sons were um were being uh, abusive to him they were abusing him in terms of financially. They were abusing him emotionally by not visiting him anymore. And um, the courts reviewed that, and these were comments that were probably uh, fed to him uh, previously while he was making the, his new will. And uh, the courts decided to throw out the will based on the fact that these were delusional statements. There was no proof or evidence that he, they actually the sons ever did any of this. So... Um, at the end of the day, what this trust ended up doing was protecting the family because with the, um, with the wills being named void, now that meant that he died intestate without a will, and there are certain rules so that um, this, uh, Yassin was gonna, Ms. Yassin was going to get some assets. But the sons actually breached their trust agreement as power of attorneys and trustees when they gave the money to the father. 
They were supposed to hold the money in trust, and he was only supposed to benefit from the income and capital, potentially. And so uh, the courts decided that that never should have formed part of the estate. So the bottom line is that um, the five children basically got to uh, just, just uh, split about $200,000 of assets because they used this trust, the Bant- now called the Banton Trust. And the new, uh, the new wife, Ms. Yassen, uh, ended up spending all of her money on legal fees and ended up with virtually nothing. So when you're looking about your estate plan, talk about a Banton Trust, which is a great way to protect those of our senior, senior population, particularly as you're transitioning from your home into perhaps a retirement home. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well as listen to old archive shows. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Thanks, Scott. Take care, everybody. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.